morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings to my 400 affiliates. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means the Hillsdale Dialogue is upon us, the last radio hour of the week. We always go high and we go long and we go deep with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and one of his colleagues this week. We are pleased to welcome back Professor Brad Berzer, who's been teaching history at Hillsdale for a very long time, and we tricked him into coming back. Oh, it's David Rainey? They made a switch. We pulled David out of the bullpen. Oh, David, welcome. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Alas, alas, this is this is David Rainey. Yes. Uh, well, you're the... My apologies. Uh, you may you may wish at the end of the hour that uh, you did have Brad on, but uh, uh, no, it's it is it is I, David Rainey. No, it's great. You're the you're the the Andy, Andrew Miller of the relief system there. I had no idea. Dwayne <laughs> told me it was Brad, but luckily I got my notes right here. Uh, good morning and welcome, Professor Rainey and Doctor Arn. Welcome. I'm going to talk about William Penn today, but I first have to begin, Doctor Arn, with. Your reaction to the United States government spending $1.9 trillion, but within that is every child in America gets $250 a month or $300 a month plus a check for $1,400. Is this not an opportunity to send thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids to private schools, charter schools, Barney private charter school initiatives? Uh, Sure. Uh, It depends on what they want to spend the money for. Uh, and that's certainly a very good idea, and I would say it comes at a good time because uh, people are really getting disgusted with the public schools, and they're under mandates to teach stuff now that's uh, odious. So I think there'll be a lot of that. I hope so. I mean, I'm not sure I support the thing, as I certainly do not support most things in the bill, because one fears that it's a step toward the universal basic income, right? That means uh, whether you get a job or not, Whatever you do, you get so much. You know, you get some money, and that money's got to be borrowed somewhere. And uh, it, it uh, ignores the great lesson of Captain John Smith, who saved a colony by saying, "Everybody's got to work, or else they don't get to eat." There is, however, the great Ronald Reagan. There's a pony in there somewhere. Story, yeah. and the pony in this bill is the fact that if parents make a plan. The guarantee of two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollars a month plus a fourteen hundred dollar per child check, they can get their kids out of a failed public school and into a parochial school or a private Lutheran or a Hebrew school into a charter school. They can do that if they make a plan and commit. In fact, I, I hope every one of your schools is out there marketing like mad, Doctor Arn. Well, the charter schools, of course, are public schools and they're free. Uh but we're we're affiliating with a lot of private schools now, and they will benefit from this. And, uh, and you know, I mean, homeschoolers, think, think, think about what that means, right? It means somebody's got to be home teaching the kid, and that means lost work, and that will make that more affordable. Yeah, I mean, it's the pony in the stable. Now let me turn to William Penn. Professor Rainey, the best thing about William Penn is that in the American Heritage Reader, I discovered that William Penn and his father, on April 25th of 1682, devised a government for the state of Pennsylvania. Now, it's obviously imperfect because the Steelers are there. But Charles II gave them all of Pennsylvania. First of all, get your arms around that. How does that happen? How do they get all of Pennsylvania given to them? Well, again, I can't speak for my colleague, uh, Dr. Berzer, but uh, I'll take a stab at it. And uh, uh, did I say it again? I'm sorry, Dr. Rainey. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I no. It's uh, no. It's quite all right. Actually, it's it's uh, 
it's an honor to uh, to have that connection. But uh, all kidding aside, thank you so much for having me back. It's it's really an honor. Uh, as to your question, um, yes, uh, the uh, incident you mentioned uh, sprang directly from from the Restoration, of course, in 1660, uh, where Charles II actually uh, took the throne. And uh, Charles was uh, indebted to uh, William Penn's father, who was actually an admiral in the Royal Navy. And uh, so William Penn, we'll call him the Younger, um, who is, of course, the son of the, the admiral, uh, he had been uh, a Quaker going back to uh, the 1660s when he was actually uh, he was converted on a trip to Ireland. And uh, so he suggested actually to the king through channels that uh, he would actually accept and be happy for a massive grant of land in the New World uh, in exchange for a discharge of his father's debt, who had helped Charles during the Restoration. And uh, uh, Charles thought, well, um, that sounds good to me. I don't have to worry about uh, spending any money on this. I can simply bestow a huge swath of land in uh, North America. And he did just that. And uh, both sides were happy. Uh, Charles got to, got to keep some additional uh, uh, funds in his, his treasury. And uh, William Penn uh, got what he thought was uh, basically a, a safe haven for religious minorities like the uh, Quakers, for example. And uh, it ended up working out well. Dr. Rainey, I, I got to think, though, uh, the fetching Mrs. Hewitt asked me as I was doing prep last night, how do you how do you even get your arms around being given that much land? It's you know, it's Pennsylvania. It's not like being given Rhode Island. You've got Pennsylvania on your hands. What, what do you do? How, I mean, the first thing he does is to establish a government. I think that's the natural thing. But the idea of even taking it on is is mad, is majestic and also overwhelming. Well, it was, and one thing to remember, I often remind my students that the uh, the, the northern and, and southern and eastern boundaries were, were uh, I won't say well-defined, but better defined than the western boundary, which was left wide open, which was often the case with uh, colonial land grants. Uh, they basically left the western border open until they pretty much figured out what was out there, and so often the, the charters would, would basically speak of uh, the western oceans or some nebulous claim. So so on, on paper, um, uh, it was one thing, but in, in reality, it, it quite frankly, yes, was another. So, uh, but Penn, you know, he'd hoped he was he was a, a businessman. He liked to he was a Quaker, but he liked to live well, and he thought that this was a chance to uh, to make some money through uh, the sale or rental of lands, and uh, the, the more the better. So, um, uh, certainly wouldn't fault him for that. But that was certainly in the back of his mind. So, Doctor Arn, I'm going to ask you the hard question up front: An imperial power, Great Britain takes possession of a colony by landing on it and planting a flag, and they presume, the king of England presumes to give all that land to one man. Of course, there are people living on it, the first peoples, the Native Americans. What is the argument from law that that is a just thing? Well, uh, the answer is uh, it's the law of conquest, I guess, except that it wasn't really a conquest. You have to think of all this as a unprecedented situation a vast land they knew some people lived there they knew that those people well eventually they knew some people lived there the news those people didn't live like us and those people you know in many cases made us welcome and william penn in particular was very good he yes made great treaties with the lenape indians and uh those treaties were broken later after his death but uh they, in other words, we can go there too, and those and the Native Americans, uh, they didn't have the same disposition toward property that we did. Uh, individual ownership of it was not the thing, and so, at least for a long time, 
and in the best places because there were there were conflicts too pretty pretty quick they got along because they didn't live the same way and they could both accommodate and uh, that's so that's and I thought you were going to say that we had learned from our Western civilization, the Greeks and the Romans, that absent property and the rule of law governing its disposition, you cannot have civilization. Well, let me, there's a really beautiful point that Brad Burser, oh, if he were here today, <laughs> <laughs> likes to make. Because uh, he, he, he studied the West a lot. And anybody who studies the, you know, the, the, the movement across the West and the conflicts with the Native Americans sees that as a great tragedy. And it's, you know, there are some villains in it, but it's hard to assign anybody in particular the blame. We were coming out there, right? It was just a massive force. Nothing could stop it. And it was people who wanted property. And, and Brad has opined, and, you know, he, he doesn't claim he knows that this would work, that maybe what we should have done instead of giving them group reservations was giving them individual title to large blocks of land together, enforceable in the American courts, just like any land is. And, uh, it, you know, it, that, that would have changed the life of the Native Americans. He's right. Almost every land reform in Southern and Central America that has succeeded has followed that model. And Yeah, and, it, and see, it would have changed, but their lives have been changed anyway, right? Because th- there wasn't any overall plan for European settlers coming to North America. In the beginning, they didn't even know what it was. And this grant that the king made to William Penn's father, that he made that grant because he'd never seen that land and he didn't expect ever to go there. He had no idea. He gave away the Philadelphia Eagles. Well, that was one thing worth unloading. When we come back, we're going to talk with Professor Rainey and Dr. Arne about why a Quaker was interested in coming, and then we're going to talk about how that Quaker set up a new government. It's actually a study in origins, applicable everywhere and at all time as to how to start something. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show, the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. It's an awful lot that happens in D.C. that you never hear about, unless you're here when Hugh Hewitt returns. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hilltale Dialogue is underway. The last radio hour of the week, this week with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hilltale College. And Professor David Rainey, who is the uh, uh, the Anth- John Anthony Halter Chair in American History, the Constitution, and the Second Amendment. And uh, Professor Rainey is also an expert in the frame of government of Pennsylvania, uh, which William Penn put together before he launched upon this expedition. Uh, uh, Professor Rainey, can we go back and talk a little bit about Quakerism and what defines it and how Penn came to set up Pennsylvania with Quakerism in mind, but not exclusively. Absolutely. Well, uh, Quakerism actually was uh, uh, it was uh, a very interesting sect of Christianity, which uh, originated in England uh, in the uh, mid 1600s. Uh, George Fox and Margaret Fell were the, uh, the leaders of this movement, 
and uh, it was marked by a number of very interesting, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, both uh, theological but also, uh, I guess, practical uh, characteristics in terms of, of daily life. And uh, first, was, and this is what distinguished them from, of course, other uh, Christian denominations and sects, uh, they believed in this uh, doctrine of, of the so-called inner light, this idea that, pe- that people uh, received uh, inspiration from, the, from the, the Holy Spirit. They basically had an indwelling of the Spirit within them, and this moved them uh, in certain ways uh, to, to, um, to, to act and, and to often speak out in meetings. And uh, this, of course, uh, was, was disturbing to, to many, uh, Anglicans and Puritans alike, this idea that uh, God somehow spoke directly to people. Uh, they found that very suspect, uh, and that was one of the reasons why they were persecuted. Uh, but in terms of modes of worship, uh, they, uh, in light of their um, belief in this inner light, uh, they would meet in meeting houses, not uh, formal churches, and uh, they were highly egalitarian. Uh, they didn't make uh, rigid distinctions between sex. They uh, would allow men and women to basically speak in these meetings as they feel that inner light uh, would work within them. And uh, so uh, often uh, men and women alike uh, would actually lead in these meetings as they uh, felt uh, compelled. Uh, so, and this again distinguished them from uh, other denominations, particularly uh, the hierarchical ones like the Church of England, and that was seen as very, very skeptical. Uh, this, this democratic type of religion was, was looked down upon as, as being undesirable. Uh, and, but these modes of worship then also um, they bled into their social practices, which were also egalitarian. Again, uh, distinctions between sex were often muted, and uh, they would often uh, not, um, I guess you can say, they, they didn't um, often uh, comport with a lot of the social conventions of the day. They wouldn't uh, salute or doff their hat to social betters in public. They wore plain clothing. Uh, they would refer to each other as thee and thou. Again, highly egalitarian and, and very suspect, especially in, uh, as you can imagine, England of the you know, mid-17th century. They refer to each other as friends, and uh, the Friends Church in, in Yorba Linda, California, still famously traces its uh, roots back to the Quaker community out of which Richard Nixon emerged. I am curious if their persecution was as bloody or as extreme as that visited on the Catholics by the Episcopalians or that visited by the Episcopalians on the Catholics during the upheavals? Well, no, I, I, I really don't think so. Uh, the, um, the persecution in England uh, was uh, very real, uh, but typically it resulted in jail time. Uh, William Penn found himself in jail uh, <laughs> repeatedly oh. during the, the 1660s, 1670s uh, for proselytism, for, for evangelizing on behalf of his faith. Uh, at, at one particular um, uh, meeting, I think it was uh, in, in 1670, uh, he was actually speaking in front of a, a padlock meeting house, and uh, he was arrested for, quote-unquote, inciting a riot. Uh, sound familiar? But anyway, he was thrown in jail, and uh, so while he was there, he actually um, uh, wrote, uh, wrote a tract and, and continued that to the point where he, <laughs> he wrote, I think, upward of 40 uh, books and, and tracts or pamphlets throughout his entire career. Uh, but typically, uh, both in England and North America, uh, persecution uh, could mean uh, certainly expulsion. In the case of the colonies, the Puritans would simply uh, expel uh, these offenders uh, and told not to come back. Now, of course, if they did come back, then, then the, um, uh, the persecution could, could get worse. They could be uh, you know, whipped, for example. And in a couple of cases, yes, uh, some were actually put to death for repeatedly uh, basically violating these banishments. But uh, generally, no, uh, the persecutions certainly were serious and, and serious to the, the, the Quakers, but uh, not of the sort you would find on the continent in earlier years. 
When we come back, William Penn decided to establish a haven for all faiths, and he did so via the frame of government of Pennsylvania, which we discussed next with Professor Rainey and Dr. Layard, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale, including an application to get you there, hillsdale.edu. Stop action-packed information. Blitz, the Hugh Hewitt Show, is coming right back. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway this week. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. And Dr. David Rainey, Professor Rainey is a professor of history, the John Anthony Halter Chair in American History, the Constitution and the Second Amendment. I was talking off air. I don't think I've ever seen a chair in the Second Amendment before. Dr. Arn, what's the backstory on that? Um, well, it, it starts uh, in about 1789 <laughs> <laughs> when, when uh, James Madison changed his mind on agreement with Virginia and Pennsylvania and uh, Virginia, Massachusetts, and New York to write the Bill of Rights. And the first item in the Bill of Rights is about the soul, and the second one's about the body, uh, because we are bodies and souls, and both require protection. And so we have the right to say what we want to and worship as we please or any way we used to, and we also have the right to defend ourselves. And uh, so that got written in there, and it's fundamental uh, I like to argue about the Second Amendment, that the importance of it is that it isn't special. It's part of the uh, aim of the entire document, cooperating all the parts with each other. Well, we you know, have been unabashedly saying that for a long time, and then John Halter comes along, and he likes shooting, and he likes the right to keep and bear arms. And so he gave us a gift, and a lot of other people have given us a gift. We're now the... Uh, sole college official, uh, sorry, affiliate of the U.S. Olympic shooting team. Well, I think, I think John Anthony Halter deserves a round of applause. Moreover, I think he ought to endow a second chair and this time make it the free exercise chair. So we cover the two things that have got to survive if the country's going to survive, the Second Amendment and the free exercise clause. Professor Rainey, enough of that. I want to get to the frame of government of Pennsylvania. This is remarkable. I had not read it before. At least I don't remember reading it in the Schlar class I took 40 years ago. Uh, give the audience an idea of what Penn tried to do with this. Well, Penn, he, of course, understood the sort of magnitude of his task of trying to bring order to this vast wilderness that you had actually referenced before. And uh, it's remarkable uh, what he did, because we have to recall that he was the proprietor of this vast colony, which meant he was basically the sole owner, yep. and uh, he could pretty much run it as he pleased. Um, and uh, he actually chose uh, to institute a representative assembly, and uh, in the preface of this, this remarkable document, he basically expresses his political philosophy and, and talks about the nature of government, its ends, uh, and uh, provides a, a quite liberal uh, structure. So it's actually remarkable in... Um, 
a variety of different ways. And uh, other than, again, uh, not uh, doing anything repugnant to the laws of England, he could have taken this uh, pretty much any direction he wished. And uh, instead, he provided a rather liberal uh, framework for the, uh, the citizens coming in. And he understood that that would, of course, be attractive uh, to those uh, in, in England, but also throughout Europe, uh, who were uh, yearning for either religious liberty uh, or for um, uh, economic opportunity. He is, he is both clear-sighted and a pessimist. In the preface, he writes, any government is free to the people under it, whatever be the frame, where the laws rule and the people are a party to those laws, and more than this is tyranny, oligarchy, or confusion. So he got a good he got a good end in mind, but then he writes, but a loose and depraved people, which is the question, love laws and the administration like themselves, that therefore, which makes a good constitution, must keep it. These, the men of wisdom and virtue, qualities that, because they descend not with worldly inheritance, must be carefully propagated by a virtuous education of youth. He is very aware that he can start a project and it could go off the rails, Dr. Rainey. That's an excellent point, absolutely. And I, I love the simile that he actually uh, he passes along uh, in, his, in his preface. He, he says, governments like clocks go from the motion men give them. And yep. governments are made and moved by men, so by them they are ruined too. So he, he's making it very clear in his mind that uh, governments are always going to reflect the people. If the people are good, uh, they will eventually find a way to make their government good. But if the people are bad, uh, it doesn't matter if, if angels craft a perfect government and give it to those people, uh, they'll find a way to destroy it and ruin it. And, and uh, that's, uh, I think, a very, very prescient. Uh, and uh, I think he's, he's spot on. Does, uh, does the record show, Dr. Oren, you are an expert on the framers, you wrote The Founder's Key. Did Madison study the frame of government? Was that one of the documents that he would have gotten at the College of New Jersey, Princeton? Oh yeah, um, it was so. One one point to make here is important. One of the main themes of William Spann's life, uh, they are faith, freedom, commerce, and learning. And you, you, David read that quote about uh, education, right? So, the, the the principles of Hillsdale College are freedom, faith, character, and learning. Uh-huh. And and in other words, he wanted a government just as James Madison did that would lay out the elements of a good life and encourage and allow people to live it. And so, and, you know, there's, uh, there, there, because it had never happened before that a people from the bottom up formed a country, you know, as a deliberate act with principles adopted at the beginning, then they have to work out mechanisms. How do we go about this, right? How are we going to, because everybody knew how monarchy worked and everybody knew how aristocracy worked, but how is this going to work? And, and you know, the, there have been philosophers write about it, and they read those, and they read each other. And William Penn's framework, and uh, uh, John Adams was another very important thinker in this area, although he's out of the country when they made the Constitution. So, it, it in other words, William Penn, by the way, is is uh, he's a, he's an odd guy in various ways, but he is one of the foremost advancers of the principles of the United States. And it's not just Quaker Quakerism; that's just the intense form of Christianity that he practiced. And you know, everybody just about practiced some intense form of it. Now, I am struck by reading the framework, uh, Professor Rainey, that he is a founder. He might be the first founder. Everything else is a collective action or a derivative of the crown or a compact, as in Mayflower, 
Ever, is there any other person who had the power that William Penn had in any of the 13 colonies? Uh, the only one that would come close would be, uh, would be uh, James II in New York, uh, a neighboring colony who, of course, um, uh, at the time he received uh, that land grant, he was the Duke of York, but then, of course, became James II. So aside from him uh, and maybe the Calvert family in Maryland, uh, no, he was, he was in, in, rarefied, uh, in rarefied air. Uh, and, and, and if I may, I'd like to, to, to pick up on the comment that Dr. Arn just made, uh, this idea of, of um, learning. Uh, Penn understood that, um, that, and you, I think Mr. Hewitt mentioned this a moment ago too, uh, you, you mentioned the quotation about um, uh, a virtuous education of youth. Yeah. That was really a linchpin here to this entire process, that in the end uh, you had to um, ensure that a good government would survive by ensuring that people remained good, that they would pursue the good life, a life of virtue, going back to Aristotle. So this idea of a virtuous education of the youth uh, is something that I talk about time and again with my students and something that survives, obviously, through the founding era. The idea that education isn't just about, you know, the three R's, you know, reading, writing, and ciphering, as they say. Uh, it's also about uh, teaching what it means to be, to be good. Uh, and uh, that's essential, of course, to, the, obviously, the sort of government that um, Penn was trying to set up and the kind of government that our founders set up. Now, he did not, however... Keep power. This is really astonishing if people think about it at home today. You're given Pennsylvania, I mean the whole state, and you can do whatever you want with it. You can run it as one vast farm. You can exploit it. Indeed, you could have turned it into a slave colony, but he was, in fact, a, a Quaker and therefore, like John Woolman, an, an abolitionist. And he chose to delegate some of his authority away to an assembly. How did he get the assembly going? What did this first founder do? Well, he basically, uh, first of all, uh, he um, did appropriate certain ideas from England, the idea of having obviously a certain uh, certain freehold. You had to have at least 100 acres of land, uh, and, and so you had to have a stake in society. Uh, but if you did, then you were considered to be uh, a freeman, somebody who could, uh, who could obviously vote and somebody who could uh, hold elected office. And, and a lot of this goes back to what you had mentioned earlier, this idea about what it means to, for government to be free of whatever, whatever sort, whether it's ruled by the one, the few, the many. Uh, the people had to be a party to those laws, and, and hence, of course, is creation then in the Charter of Liberties um, of that uh, the, the General Assembly and the different um, uh, the different qualifications that he placed upon not only membership in it, but also, of course, uh, being an elector to uh, choose those folks. And so did they balance their power against the executive who was Penn? I remember reading that Penn was a crafty fellow. He did establish an assembly, but he reserved a, quite a lot of power to himself to veto its laws. Is that correct? That's correct, right. And Penn, so right, he was not uh, by any means any sort of absentee landlord. That's exactly right. He still remained proprietor, and he did uh, guard those prerogatives jealously. There's no question about that. Um, and uh, but he, he certainly remained uh, engaged in the affairs of of, um, uh, of the colony. So you're right, though. Yes, he always retained that right to um, to basically to disallow acts of the assembly. Uh, and of course, in the end, um, uh, basically the the, uh, the king, the English government, reserved the same the same right too. So Penn was simply exercising that at a more local level. So, Doctor, before we go to break, did you ever find him as interesting as the framers? I, I've got a new. Int I don't even know if there's a good biography of Penn, but it's an extraordinary thing. A, a country the size of Pennsylvania given to one person. Oh yeah, and uh, he. I mean, if you, he, the story of his life is simply fascinating, and and uh, you know he died broke, and 
his you know his his relations with his father were up and down. He had a lot of the qualities of his father because you know he he was a Quaker. By the way, I'm not. I I, th- I think that William Penn was not an abolitionist, but David can check that. Um, but uh, he was, you know, and that was a very b- uh, difficult thing to be in England at that time, because for one thing, the uh, you know the church is set up in many countries. Catholic Church used to be set up that way, so that it was part of a hierarchy that was part of the hierarchy of government, too. So in England, the House of Lords is the Lords spiritual and temporal. That means the bishops are in there, Correct. Yep. and then the peers. And so the Quakers skewed all that, and that made him, you know, that made them sort of revolutionaries. And uh, they were often accused of treason. And Penn himself was arrested many times for spreading Quakerism. And then on the other hand, he sets up this vast government, and it was successful, wildly successful. He was beloved for most of his life in Pennsylvania, and and uh, he was he 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 had the root of the matter in him, and he did a good job. When we come back, I'm going to ask Professor Rainey for the best bio. He can look that up in the five minutes we have. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. The last segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue with Professor Rainey, Dr. Larry Arn, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. We were talking during the break, and I want to talk now about religious liberty in Pennsylvania. Dr. Rainey, what was the rule that William Penn laid down? Well, the, the basic rule uh, for uh, residents in the colony was uh, that you essentially believe in um, what he considered to be the one the one true God, what we might um, say is the uh, the Abrahamic God, um, as as he put it, um, that all people who live in the province had to quote confess and acknowledge the one Almighty and eternal God to be the Creator, Upholder, and Ruler of the world. So I think in his view that meant um, pretty much anyone within the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition was certainly welcome to to live in the colony, and and as long as they maintained uh, a peaceable posture, they were law-abiding, they would not be um, uh, uh, bothered in any way uh, for their faith. But in theory, uh, this this could be extended to pretty much all Abrahamic faiths, but I think in Penn's mind, this primarily meant people um, who adhere to uh, some form of uh, Judeo-Christianity. So the freeholders got to vote, but there was no established church. There was not. That's that's exactly right. And Penn was very, very clear about that. Of course, he had some very bad experiences with the established church back in England and certainly didn't want to replicate that. Uh, so he was not uh, a narrow sectarian in that case. And he made it very clear that people not only wouldn't be um, bothered uh, for um, whatever mode of, of worship that they engaged in, but they would not be compelled at any point uh, to attend any type of religious service so of, of any kind, whether it was their own or, or one established by the colonies. He was pretty clear on that. You know, I've read a lot of Jefferson and Madison biographies. I don't recall them being influenced by Madison. Do you, Dr. Arn? I mean, by uh, Penn, do you? Uh, well, uh, they were, but uh, he's not, you know, he's, first of all, Pennsylvania is out west, right? You have yeah. to sort of adjust your thinking, right? And that means that it wasn't, you know, Boston and New York and, and uh, uh, Richmond. Those were important places, Charlottesville. And uh, so there's that. 
but also he was back and forth a lot. He had a lot more English connections than most of them did because he had property over there and he went back there a lot. So, yeah, I don't, he's not, you wouldn't list him, I don't know what David thinks about this, but you wouldn't list him as one of the, you know, Madison, Adams, Hamilton, Jefferson, Washington. Those are the key founders, right? And he's not one of those. And religious liberty did have its limits in the colonies. You were telling us a story during the break. Yeah. Well, uh, so there's a, uh, you know, to understand America, in my little opinion, it, uh, you, you require to understand that, that, that we set out to let people live human lives with all the responsibilities and aspirations of that. And so that, that, that those elements, right, commerce, freedom, faith, uh, were Penn's big three. Well, they they had to work their way to religious freedom. And so Daniel Borston, who's a famous historian, he's dead now, but he was the Librarian of Congress, and he he was the head of a school that thinks that America are the most pragmatic people on earth. They don't have any principles, or they don't follow principles. They're not given to abstractions. Well, Quakers were very fervent people. And, uh, you know, the, the idea is when the inner light shows in them, they quake. Uh, and so they went to Massachusetts Bay to convert people from Puritanism to Quakerism. And that was the death penalty in Massachusetts Bay. And uh, so they arrested these three men and one woman, a woman, and they convicted them and put them on the gallows. But then they let them go after they did that and said, don't come back. Well, that in Boston is a proof of our pragmatism. Uh, but then, of course, not the woman, but the three men went back, and they were arrested, and they were hung. And that, see, that's, uh, I can't remember what year that was in, but that's, you know, after the founding of Pennsylvania. So that's, we, we, we Americans worked our way to religious freedom, and were the first ones to do it. Now, let me close by asking Professor Rainey about how well did the, reputation for religious tolerance work for William Penn? Did every sort of sect flow into Pennsylvania? Is that why Lancaster has its uh, its Amish, etc.? Oh, absolutely. I think that was a big, a big part of it. Uh, Penn uh, was, um, he was insistent that people understand uh, some of the most important aspects of his colony from his vantage point, uh, not only, of course, the bountiful resources and economic opportunity, um, and he was very clear that uh, it would take hard work in order to even get back, upon arriving at the colony, to get back to your standard of living back in your home country. It'd take a year or two to even break even, so to speak. Uh, but yes, he, he published uh, tracts far and wide, uh, not only in England, but also on the continent, extolling the virtues of, yes, the, the economic opportunities, but also, of course, yes, the religious liberty that uh, people would uh, be able to enjoy. And, and um, people flocked, you know, by, by the thousands, the tens of thousands uh, and, and more to Pennsylvania to take advantage not just of the economic opportunities, which people often focus on, but the fact that, yes, people would largely be left alone, you know, to worship freedom. the dictates of their conscience. Freedom is the best lighthouse. It really is. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, Professor Rainey, thank you both. William Penn's a remarkable fellow, as is the framework of Pennsylvania. The Hillsdale Dialogue is back with two episodes next week because we're going to do Edwards and Witherspoon in the same week. So don't...
when you absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show.